This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is Onirban. I bring you uh, stories from the past and at times conversations with historians. Today, we have Dr. Shilpi Rajpal. Shilpi is uh, a student of Delhi University. She's taught at Delhi and Jamia. Now, Shilpi is at University of Copenhagen, where she is researching a project on what she calls decolonizing insanity. Decolonizing madness. Right. And we'll be asking questions on that, Shilpi, but towards the end. Right now, of course, I wish to talk to you about your book, Curing Madness. Um, social history, social and cultural history of insanity in colonial North India, 1800 to 1950. Yes. I want to begin with the date, really, the 19th century. You begin in your introduction with uh, a very general observation that the idea about madness and insanity undergoes a major change all over the world in the 19th century. Will you explain what you mean by that? What kind of change? What was it like earlier? And what happened in the 19th century? 19th century is actually taken as a point in, you know, the beginning of psychiatry. And and, and one movement which all psychiatrists and all, you know, historians go back to is the freeing of insane by Pinel. Pinel was a French physician who uh, freed the insanes out of the chains of, uh, you know, they were chained. Uh, so it is basically that moment from which uh, insanity would not looked as something which was some someone who, who were like animal-like or the, the people who, you know, had no sense, but they would be rather looked at who would be taken care with Kindness, so kindness is an idea started getting linked to it and, and, you know, managing insanity becomes the main idea behind uh, the modern psychiatry, you know, the moral management. The idea is we, you know, so from Pinel onwards, you have uh, people like Samuel Duke, uh, who are, you know, who are also, who open up asylums in um England and also in other parts, which is which was very famously known as the York Retreat, and all of them had one idea, which was about moral management, the way how you manage the insane. So the previous ideas which existed before the 19th century and why 19th century is significant is also because now from the 19th century the idea of treatment of insane, insane were rather looked as someone who were sick, not as lesser humans, you know, as as they were understood, you know, previously, previous to that. So how this conception change, and this is also the point which also is somewhere the beginning of psychiatry in some ways where uh, there is more discussion about it is, is this, you know, entire dialogue about. This is a um, wonderful possibility if you let me ask you this. You talk about the ideas about insanity before the 19th century as if the insane were treated or thought of as wild animals or beasts. Yes. Yes. Uh, Will you explain that a bit? Because 
that seems to be a world apart and that really is a point of departure So this is a point of departure when also when we think about in terms of knowledge formation, in terms of epistemologies, in terms of epistemologies, modern medicine, which we think of is not that old, you know, it it is uh, 400 years old. So we first of all take modern medicine and modern science and modern technology as as, you know, taken for granted that it, it existed forever. But with the time period we are talking about is also the time period where, you know, it was far more common to treat them as lesser humans, as animals, but also as fools. But it's where the good point was that they were more accepted. They were, you know, fools on the street. Fools will speak the truth. Every court will have a fool. So there is very interesting history of fools. You yes. know, fools, someone who were unique, who were, you know, uh, who will not, who were not like all the humans, which were some way unique to humans were more animalistic so you have both these caricatures being there in 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 indian you know uh, understanding itself you also have various uh, ideas about you know madness which is because of uh, you know ayurveda talks about how it was inflicted because of the you know evil forces by because of the devil and so on and also because of the interior ideas of of the malfunction of the biles. So, but how these ideas, especially in the West, and and, and my story is about the Western psychiatry in India. And and I, of course, uh, do discuss, a bit of discussion is also there about uh, Indian indigenous traditions. But the the largest story is about the coming of the Western psychiatry, which also in places like India was colonial psychiatry because colonial psychiatry is, uh, you know, somewhat, it comes with a certain ideas. It comes with certain missions as such. So, you know, uh, and if you want me to elaborate, what do I exactly mean here? Because psychiatry was established or these asylums were established were especially more for the Europeans. They were not for, you know, initially yeah, for the native. That's the second part of the story where, I'm going to follow up with the question. So inevitably, you begin with the establishment of of asylums and with the laws, really, which um, sort of put in place the overall arrangement that leads to the caring and management of these uh, so-called deviant uh, characters. The idea of deviation actually um, will later be um, sort of controlled into a psychiatric or a more biological sort of a regime of cure. Now, how does um, the colonial law really handle the category of uh, of the deviant of uh, the malfunctioning Indians? And as you said, it started probably with um, the Europeans in India who would appear to be a bit of an embarrassment, I suppose, to the colonial exactly. state if they exactly. were there. Uh, laid out into the open. So will you yes. tell us the story maybe to begin with of such an incident and then take us through these um, concern and anxiety of the colonial state that the white man traveling as a lunatic will appear to be a huge embarrassment really to the natives? I think, you know, white man idea of insanity with the medicine comes the shame, you know, with uh, something which Michel Foucault has also spoken about in in great detail and 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 
the discipline and the power of psychiatry also emerges there how you know honey but the, the, the story which is linked to colonialism here is you know how especially the european insane you know these soldiers of we often again think of soldiers who would be you know most probably in their 20s but some of them were even younger when they came to india and in in, in we live in the age of uh, where we can connect across the world but imagine when the letter would a single letter will take certain months to reach to india and you know they would have no communication with their own families so in absence of anything they being uh, feeling alienated and some of them also you know uh, faking insanity you know there are also incidences also in you know especially the soldiers who wanted to go back you know and we do not see them as um uh, these men but also rather somewhere the boys you know quote and quote in terms of age and in terms of vulnerability in terms of new temperature because tropics was a new climate and this is 18th century right exactly you know 18th century and how heat of the tropics would drive them insane the idea of heat and madness you know um was also very much there so the asylums were essentially opened for the insane europeans who would be sent back who would be kept in india for a while in the european asylums and the idea of european asylums you know the, the very idea european asylums gave the push for the native asylums but throughout this period there was a separate european asylum and there was a separate there were separate native asylums and this spread in the 20th century into the 19th century right even in the 20th the century so throughout the 19th century you did not allow even the 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 mentally sick to merge together they would merge in a different ways like all these native asylums would have one ward essentially where you know few white men will stay but they would also be again transported to the european asylums wow so that the segregation was essential to maintain the racial hierarchy in fact you you i'd ask you about the racial uh, prism a little later but what were essentially the phases in which the understanding of the colonial state in india changed over time about the idea of lunacy about the idea of insanity and deviancy because part of your book in fact a very large part of your project is about the changing meaning of these terms uh and their management so yeah you also spoke about law so essentially when we think about law and and the when we think about law related to psychiatry law related to madness law themselves uh only originated in in and and it was the legal framework which which defined insanity and it still remains to be one of the most ambivalent category of you know how to define someone whether someone did this in the fit of insanity or it was committed in reason so the the idea of defining reason was is one you know was one of the most controversial and still remains to be the one of the most nebulous way of defining within the law so this is something which we need to again think of you know and when these laws were formed in england you know they were automatically extended to india till the mid of the 19th century because um and there was something which um michael fisher has written about about the 
Dai Sombre, and you know how he he discusses about Begum Samru's hire and how he was declared insane. So why I'm taking is also the idea of chancery lunatic, the idea that the state would take care of these, the state would act as a parent, you know, to these insane, and especially the wealthy insane, you know, because their property is also you know important. But now when we're talking about law and the extension of the British law, it's only in in the year 1858 that the act 36 was passed which is the first lunacy act in india so from here onwards you see some sort of a legal framework emerging you know where there is and this fortunately or unfortunately was not done to provide more um, uh, you know proper hospitals or to extend the asylums to people of a native or philanthropy no but if you go and in, get into the papers and what i felt in papers related to the act this discussed how it was actually uh, the act was passed because they wanted to f- have a clear legal framework of for also for these european especially the superintendent and the police who is going to book a put these people and so most of the time in the 19th century psychiatry in india served the poor and by poor i here mean that one there was european the other was most of the time these people who were picked by the police they were taken uh, to the magistrate who with the help of the medical officers declared whether these people were sane or insane you know that that like you know the magistrate with the help of the medical doctor would declare and only after that they were sent to so it is not only me but also other historians have also discussed how asylums in the 19th century did the street clearing how the problematic individual and again here the very meanings of culture get extended because um being lived in like live, being we all have lived in india and we all know how we see a fakir we do not see fakir as insane we see him otherworldly this is how they live but for the britishers it was very unique you know it was uh, it, it, they were insane and and actually yeah. i'd like you to talk a little bit more about these categories the scope of these categories extended to accommodate people who otherwise would not be treated as insane Certainly. absolutely of course you know and 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 what we also need to go back and remind ourselves is very interesting relationship of drugs and colonialism how certain drugs were problematized at the same time these drugs were also so so core for the revenue of of the state you know how so at the same time it is not it was not only opium but also hemp which comes under the scrutiny and and some of the population which was having hemp and and in various forms of ganja charas um it is still you know it's in holy it's such a normal thing for everyone to have bhang you know it's, it's just a normal way of it's culturally acceptable but this how these drugs were came under scrutiny how people who were uh having these drugs in various forms fakir who would be using you know these sort of drugs in in hookah and or in having a bhang were rather problematized and it, this is something which we of course know from the 1857 as well the fear of uh, the fear of the state with this mobile population about you know this mobile population which would move from a place to other and would become the threat to the empire since you mentioned mobile population would this also extend this concern of the state that it cannot manage a mobile group to say um 
people who would otherwise be called gypsies or uh, you know itinerant peddlers or uh, those who carried out trade small traders who kept moving from one place to another since it appears In to asylum be- records i do not come with it but again we did create again uh, when we look at um you know particularly this uh, particularly law related to particular caste and I'm mm-hmm. forgetting uh, exactly the name of it i'll just come up uh, yeah the, you know particularly work of meena radhakrishnan and about but and yes you know exactly Chinese. what i'm talking about yeah so how they they had a different laws itself for these itinerant people how they would you know if they would you know from thagi to we should actually put them all together in one purview when we think about thagi when we think about lunacy acts how they were all meant for actually mobilizing uh, state power in different ways and also dealing with these mobile people how these they were so important these acts were so important you know so right. even puts them within that and this is which also you know it's very important when we think about a fakir so how fakir was one of those is one of that category who ended up in the asylum and you know you find them uh, you also have some time and what what i felt is one of my core argument is also about how more and more uh, if you look at the categories of the medical examiners and the, the superintendents all often said that how it is always the dangerous and the people who can be cured you know who should be brought to the asylums you know yeah that's in fact one of uh, your major arguments in the second or in the third chapter that the asylum itself as an institution instead yeah. of um, you know uh, sort of transcending hierarchies appeared to reinforce existing hierarchies of caste of white absolutely and black. yes 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 and yes absolutely right because in some ways they had to replicate the system you know like you will have a cook who would you know in in terms of the caste because the food, even in in when these in, in like these insane patients how uh they would be within them there will be a division in sense of a brahmin cook would be hired not a cook cook from a lower caste because how caste hierarchies had to be maintained within the asylum but also what is very interesting is that constantly the people who worked as staff in the mental hospital were from these uh lower caste because it was not a very popular work so th- there was again this rhetoric of you know or or a discussion where uh i remember um much much be six you know six were only yep. were the one who would be working in the yep. asylum because it was considered to be extremely unpopular you know asylum was not a very popular um place to be throughout the 19th century people did not wish to send there in india it remained rather a isolated prison like institutions you know even when i discussed the architecture of it in spite yeah. of all the discussion and debate of people you know even interestingly people like uh, i'm forgetting his name who also has a mental uh, who has a hospital in delhi it is very interesting because you know uh, how the entire panopticon sort of institutions were created how uh, there is this attempt to you know give them this place which they want to be more like asylum structures in europe but at the same time they replicate the glorious prisons and there is this debate about it 
you know. To tell us a little more about this architecture debate and uh, how does this sort of differ in India from the structures in because typically it felt like prison and it tended indeed tended to replicate prison. It did absolutely did because yeah. especially in the 19th century, if I'm talking about the 19th century, they would often be very close to the prison. If you look at the map of Delhi before the siege of 1857, the asylum was already there. You know, it was, I think, established. I do not have the exact year, but which I tried to really look in the archives. But somewhere in 24, 20, 1824, 1825, the asylum was established. And it is outside the walled city near the jail. And now near the jail, one, it has to be out of sight. These are the problematic section of society which should not be within the city. First and foremost, that is the idea. Second, near the jail also meant in certain ways how they would be uh, exchange of, you know, they would be able to ask certain sort of manacles to, you know, uh, to imprison <laughs> them. Ex- you know, the extension of all the, you know, in- the instruments of rather uh, correction would be used and they would be taken from the prison, which also shows that this relationship. And and by even the end of the 19th century, what one clearly comes across is also, you know, when the, when they try to make more built asylums, because when you look at the Lahore Asylum, it started in a stable. Yeah. Yes. You know, it started in a stable, but eventually it was built, entirely built in, you know, 1899 around 1899 in Lahore. And that was one of the major asylums in Punjab. And it, it still stands the way it is. And I was somehow able to visit Pakistan and get there and, you know, get a bit of material from there, like archival material from there. It was a diff- it's a very different story. But how, you know, the entire... It's a, a, it's a bit of a digression, but what was it like? I'm sure many would be interested in in a little bit of a story about how to work in Pakistan and access archives Aparna Vaidik has worked in Pakistan. She was telling me wonderful stories. So what was it, it was, like for you? It was very crazy. It was like, you know, for me, it was very uh, difficult because to get a visa, there is nothing called research visa, which exists in, uh, you know, in these countries. So I this was a conference because of which I was able to go and I was able to really plead to you know, the gentleman in the Pakistan embassy in Delhi that it will be very kind of you if you let me go to the Lahore Mental Hospital. And I was able to go, but it was very difficult for me to get access to the archives. And once I did, even then, you know, there was a lot of like the police wanted to know what I was doing, why I was doing, what, you know. So as first as an Indian, then I as a woman, it was all a challenge to get into, you know. And I think as a woman, I and I would like to suggest it to the younger researchers, asylums and prisons are slightly difficult places to work, you know. But yes, it's one has to get in them, so one has to get in them. <laughs> so. but, but was it different? Because the time you're talking about, say, 1800 to 1950, Lahore, most of it, was North India, not necessarily Pakistan. So obviously, um, did you see a great deal of continuity? Continuity in what sense? In the sense that the the processes and uh, protocols of treatment uh, of the the insane, did they kind of carry forward 
the same protocols as in the early 20th century. And also here, I, I main question is this really from where I digressed. You talk about um, the transition of uh, the approach to insanity in the late 19th century towards a more biological and a more medical kind of a framework. Um, hmm. How does that happen? Psychiatry really uh, sort of takes hold of the administration and uh, the authorities as a more specialized vocation in medicine since the late 19th century. How does that yes. change really the approach of the state to the lunatics or to the insane? In fact, the word also begins to change. They would be called yes. lunatics earlier. Now they'd be called insane and so on. So no, they were called insane earlier. And it was in, in the beginning of the 19th century, they are called insane. Yeah. Then the word lunatic becomes more popularly in use. And after that, you have the word mental hospital mental. and mental patients, you know, uh, which is now we uh, try to use more vocabulary, which is sensitive. But this change of vocabulary also tells you how, you know, what was the socially accepted ideas about it, you know, because lunacy when as a word comes from lunar change of moon and its effect on human beings. Uh, but when, especially, you know, uh, the end of the 19th century is this great period also of the idea of degeneration, you know, idea that these people are not getting better. And there is a lot which is written about it in different contexts, you know, uh, about how how they are actually, they are, you know, this is, this is what is emerging from the Western asylums, not necessarily from the Indian asylums, but the impact is on the discipline of psychiatry itself. You know, how the idea of biological psychiatry is actually emerges with also charcoal and new, with the idea of neurology emerges idea of so the beginning of the 20th century is a century of change in that way. You have also people like Kripalin talking about earlier forms of dementia periods, which is, you know, this is an earlier form of schizophrenia. So how it started to be seen more and more as biological rather than a problem of management, you know, whether they, there is not much cure, but we can manage them. You know, the idea throughout the 19th century was about managing the insane. You know, how they had to be treated with kindness, how routine was essential, how um, routine will help them in certain ways in, 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 in reforming their behavior. What they could best do is to reform their behavior. But by the 20th century, there is emerge of more biological ideas. Also looking at the concept of heredity, also to looking at the concept of how are they further degenerating, can they, what can be you know the ways of improving them. So psychiatry becomes far more uh, refined as a discipline, more scientific as a discipline in certain ways, and and but at the same time, it you know I would refrain i would be asking everyone to be cautious to think about it taking a very straight trajectory rather there comes a new you know era of abuses new era of uh, you know invention of ect electroconvulsive therapy which is in the night but before that the insulin therapy how uh, electricity would be used and the shocks would be you believe that how they will they you know help them to cope up the insanity along with that what is also happening is which is something i would look at in the future is also the one of the most controversial things is also about lobotomy you know 
threatening um, the frontal lobe. So, so that is a different sense. You know, it's a beginning of a century where. I mean, Becoming more scientific is not necessarily becoming more rational in many ways. One of the words you use um, actually in talking about your book, and I'm reading through it, irrationalities of colonialism and nationalism about yeah. um, the idea of insanity and psychiatry as it evolves. And that part really comes out in your last response so now that we're moving towards the last segment of the discussion, I'd really like you to tell us more about the sort of irrationality of the nationalist um, lens, really, of Indians, as it were, as they uh, adopted, adopted and appropriated the idea of psychiatry. You have this chapter on um, North Indian popular literature, really, as um, it it sort of reconceptualizes psychiatry and uh, insanity in a far more culturally charged sort of a manner. Um, yes. How does that happen? How do Indians reimagine madness or lunacy in, say, this has to be 20th century, really? Uh, okay. Um, before going that, something which I was not able to remember was the name of Gangaram, Sir Gangaram, chief architect of the Lahore city, who was also the architect of the Lahore asylum. And, uh, you know, he, he was someone who planned the asylum in a very panopticon fashion. Uh, and, and the map is there and, and the design is there, the planning is there in the book. So that is something I just wanted to recall and discuss because again you know, the entire city was constructed and how this was one of the modern idea of architecture but then within those papers was also the idea about the glorious that in spite of all of this it remained a glorious prison you know the overlap what we've discussed between prison and that now coming to the last you know discussion last part of our discussion about irrationalities so i do talk about not only the irrationalities of uh, psychiatry, which I'm also, you know, referring here by the 20th century and uh, by lobotomy and, and the modern form of abuses, which also emerged within psychiatry. And this is not to say that I do not, you know, say that psychiatry did any, you know, it was any good. I'm not saying it from the anti-psychiatry right. point of view, but I'm rather saying that how the, these trajectories have to be uh, looked at with their limitations, you know, how modernity has its own limitations. How, uh, but now when we look at the another trajectory and irrationalities of colonialism, which also Fanon has talked about, of violence, and you know how inferiority started to be built as we as inferior, you know, to the colonizers and colonized as superior, ideas of superiority, violence, and how we should place asylum as a place within that, but also nationalism, you know, coming nation and nationalism, the irrationalities of nationalism. And when we think about nationalism, we think about uh, 1920s, which is of such uh, important and critical period of the birth of nationalism and also of communalism in India. A cancer we are going through. And yeah. Uh, so what did you say? conclude with Toba Taksing at some point. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> I will touch upon that, but I'll just take two minutes. And uh, so when we talk about irrationalities of nationalism, I'm talking about how the ideas about manlyhood and masculinity emerged and how that itself was linked 
to many more things, nationalism, but also about gendering these spaces. How, you know, on the one idea, this very idea of hysteria, which is female insanity, and on the other idea, the idea about masturbation or, or controlling the self, which also becomes a very dominant theme within Indian nationalism of self as so important within the Gandhian ideas also and how if you're not control yourself, you know, what happens then, you know, the loss of the semen and the loss of the nation state and, and you know, the, the, the Muslim miseries, which is, uh, which is going to, which is overpopulated as a Hindu as a declining race, which a fear, which was given to us in that moment of history and we still, you know, live with so that itself it talks about this irrationalities and brahmacharya's idea and the idea of you know not loss of semen through masturbation and trying to save the nation and especially the hindu nation now talking about the hindu nation i would here again like to bring to partition and i am a third generation of the refugee so uh, you know, partition and going to Pakistan was very emotional for me because what I've heard from my grandmother all my childhood was only about what, when she left at the age of 11, you know, Pakistan was, you know, how many cows they had, she could still run to her home. So for me, that was also the moment of going back. And when I went to, I was finally able to go to the mental hospital in, uh, you know, Lahore, uh, I was able to find the name of Sadat Hassan Mantu, who was oh. admitted there. <laughs> yeah, it was a moment of, wow. You know, I was actually like five minutes trying to tell myself, okay, you, you have got the name. So in the, in the very registers, the name Sadat Hassan Mantu was there. He was, it is, it is written that he's Raza Kar, he's, he's a voluntary admission. And, uh, but there is not much discussed, but Manto, who also tells the tale, irrationalities of nationalism, you know, irrationalities of, and rationalities of, rationality of a madman, you know, then the state, the entire story of Toba takes scene of this, you know, larger than life figure, Sadat Hassan Manto talks about Toba Teek Singh. It's a story of, uh, you know, the mental hospital of Lahore and how these madmen refused to believe that, uh, you know, they can, you can divide the country between the two and, you know, how can you can divide the land? The question remained ambivalent and there. But here the state not only divided the land, but also divided the insane. Yeah, it's it's such a moving story. I mean, both of us probably would have read it at a far younger age, but the simplicity of it, the very point that a madman, a bunch of madmen, uh, and strangely enough, was there a woman in the story? In fact, we have, maybe we should extend it by uh, a bit more, I suppose, hearing your last answer. We haven't really spoken about women except the hysteria point. What do you what do you have about women and uh, the ideas of uh, of madness evolving in India and also uh, among the colonial authorities? And I, I apologize for not uh, sort of alerting you to this before. No, 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 absolutely. Women is actually, you know, the, the, the miss, women are the missing patient. Women yeah. are those missing patients in these archives and in these words. So rather they are more silent because asylums, the, the only women who were more and more... Uh, 
you know, were incarcerated were either the prostitute or the wives of the soldiers. But you have much less women who were voluntary because of the ideas of shame in India and ideas about, you know. Uh, so if you look at the statistics in the West, when more and more, more women were sent to, you know, that is what classical works like Elaine Schroelter's Female Malady talks about how ideas of madness were there. And these ideas were in India, but they were not sent, you know, when in the West, more women were sent. Most of the time, the you know, in both the sexes, women were the patient who was sent to the asylum. But in the case of India, women were far less and their accounts are far less. There discussion like there is less discussion about women and women female patients in the asylum. So rather I'll say it is the missing or, or the absence of them, which also talks about actually, you know, the restricted in the prison spaces they were, which were not considered to be but but in the larger, which which is outside the very space of asylum, you know, in, in the popular ideas is also about the ideas of hysteria, which we were talking about ideas where uh, women who are prone to comfort, you know, by the 20th century beginning or who watch romantic movies or read novels are prone to insanity. Again, gendering by the 1920s and 30s, gendering men, Hindu men particularly as these should be masculine, should save the same men too. You know, so that the Hindu nation can, and these women should not be empty, rather they should invest themselves to be good wives. And these romantic ideas were not going good to them. So how these ideas of insanity also were formulated around the irrationalities of nationalism. Kind of overlap between the idea of the senseless and the insane in case of women kind of converging. So (laughs) women not having sense or enough sense i suppose those who read novels wasted time and so forth exactly you know because time was something because women at this period of time if you uh you know look at the larger ideas ideas of how and you know how to how they had to be not only the ativrata how they had to not only be the good women who had to be you know good domesticated women who should invest in you know, building the home, which will become the ideal of the nation, you know, how the home and the nation have this overlap of perfect home, a Hindu home, you know, is so core to the Hindu nation and and very ideas around it. So it's exactly this idea which came around of women who are far, far more organized. And these, of course, as we know, come from the Victorian notions about the time and, and the ideas about how household had to be, you know, Managed and, and people like uh, historians like Anshumalokra has also taught me has also it's about sugar and pativrata and how you know they had to be investing everything in the household was so crucial. Okay, so um, what happens to the story after 1950? What? Um, how are you looking at it now? I understand yeah. you're working on on the idea of uh, or a history of decolonizing the idea of madness in South Asia or as a whole? Uh, this project is, um, so I'm not the only one, but there are other people who also look at Latin America and uh, Middle East and Eastern Europe. So we're all looking at Global South that way. But this project is called Decolonizing Madness. And I particularly look at the decolonizing of the mind and the global mental health movement in India. So for me, the two two most significant point of which I which have started to investigate now is the mental hygiene movement, 
the precursor of the mental health movement, which of course has also its uh, racial past and linked to the racial hygiene. And but one of the major movement across the world, which talked about prevention and looking at the signs of insanity, you know, is so important. And also psychoanalysis and histories of psychoanalysis and how these actually two important projects, you know, two important two uh, two movements, you know, two. Uh, departures and such also allow India to become partner with the globe. You know, how India becomes a global, you know, partner and, and India has uh, in the many conferences on psychoanalysis and conference of mental hygiene, India starts representing and how I would eventually look at also how most of these psychiatrists, which I also discussed there, were trained in England. They were not trained in, you know, India as such because there was no infrastructure still. Uh, India has continued even the 1940s and 50s. So how were they were trained? My interest is there. I also want to look at, you know, the lack of infrastructure in the beginning of the 20th, in the, in the beginning, in the mid of the 20th century near the independence. And who were these modern architects of Indian psychiatry? And we are particularly looking at in uh International Pilot Study of Schizophrenia, which was conducted by the World Health Organization, WHO, in the 1960s. India was one of the participants and one of the major figures which comes there is also Casey Dube, who was who charted, who was the head of the study in the Agra Mental Hospital. And how they constantly talk about and how they negotiate their terms with the Western or the Global North, you know, and how these ideals about schizophrenia were investigated. Sounds like a fascinating story. And also, this must have had something to do with, um, did they try consciously? I mean, this is sort of uh, probably my last question. And uh, did the pioneers of psychiatry and psychoanalysis in post-independent India consciously try to, to change really the direction of their inquiry and practice from what existed before uh, in a post-colonial sort of a manner, there's not much of a change. It's too early for me to say, because I'm still investigating, but one uh, thing where I'll leave it here and it will probably leave everyone interested and it leaves me also excited is also, you know, uh, this particularly this psychiatrist in the 60s, N.N. Wick saying, you know, we are Indian made for a liquor. How we are still doing the Western psychiatry and we do not know anything about the Indian psychiatry itself. And it talks about the ambivalence of decolonization, you know, were, were or are we still, you know, colonized in terms of the sciences and how far have we, you know, decolonized ourselves. There's always been this impulse in, in Delhi and elsewhere, probably in psychiatry and psychology department to, you know, kind of bring in Indian traditions of doing psychology in ways that I don't fully understand, but my friends who study psychology tell me. So, I suppose that conflict and ambivalence will continue to remain for a long time yet, as I hear you uh, talk about its history. I just have one, you know, when we, we were, when especially we're talking about how we have not uh, looked at the, in here, uh, you know, more and more psychiatrists and more and more psychologists have come to term with the healing of, healing cultures which have existed in India. So if you read the work of people like Kakkar, he talks about different shrines, different places, and how these places, because of the coming of colonialism and the idea of modernity as, you know, 
as this uh, with Western science as something modern and, and you know the idea of this is primitive this division which existed how actually it started to look at these places as you know as with disdain rather you know which needs to be questioned and these places probably need to be used more as places where healing to people who cannot come to the hospitals can be provided who can be you know and how uh, just thinking about it, and this is something, you know, I'm, people like Aurobindo and, you know, how the ideas about uh, life and ideas about living, living as a living, you know, and, and culture needs to be placed within the ideas also of mind and psych sciences, which develop and needs to look at the healing culture more broadly, you know, is something which also, which we are very interested in doing. And at least I am. That, that makes a great deal of sense and welcome change, really. There must be multiple traditions of, of healing and dealing with uh, the mind sciences, as it is now called. So, um, historically speaking, although it's not uh, always been even in terms of progress, there certainly has been positive changes, as I can gather from what you told us uh, tonight. But uh, I look forward to, to another chat and for our listeners to actually read Shilpi's book. It's, and I told her when I was informally talking about this interview, it's extremely lucidly written. Um, not a single sentence probably stretches beyond 13 or 14 words. Uh, that's very rare coming from a professional historian. And congratulations once again for your lucidity of the book. And thank you. thank you so much for talking to me and talking um, about the early history of uh, the changing ideas of uh, insanity and madness in India in the 19th and early 20th century. I look forward to more uh, conversations and engagement, Shilpi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. And I'm so glad you have this public platform where we can talk to, you know, with, with you and with you know, take our ideas beyond academics. This is Onirban signing off. Do please subscribe and let us know what you like and what you'd like included in History Chatter. Bye-bye.